Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. If I can't explain the case to my mom in 30 minutes, right, and her understand it, then I'm doing something wrong. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited. We have a fun we have a fun case to talk about today. A very fun case and uh, and a great guest. But I, I did want to. I was going to mention something, and we'll have our guests talk about this too, uh, uh, Natalie. But um, I actually uh, got my first day in court yesterday. I was actually in a courtroom, and it's been more than a year since I've been in an actual courtroom. So, oh, so uh, I didn't realize. So that was in person. It was in person. Yep. In Chatham. Yep. In Chatham, yep. They had so, all the glass up, so like the judge sits behind glass, the witness is behind glass, and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, you know, otherwise it was regular old courtroom. I mean, so it was do, nice. do you take your mask off when it's your turn to speak, or does everybody keep them on? So interestingly, the judge didn't have much guidance on what we should do. Uh, he he basically said, "I've been vaccinated, so you all do whatever you want." And uh, so we basically everybody left their mask on except if they were talking. And then when they talked, they took their mask off. Gotcha. That's um, classic classic Chatham County. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's our new normal, I guess, for a little while. Anyway, That's right. I'll be That's curious right. to see how long this lasts. You know, I've been vaccinated, and as vaccinations. Uh, increase. I'll be curious to see if this lasts just this year or, you know, yeah. how, how long we'll do this for. Right. Exactly. And like, you know, the, I've heard about booster shots being out there and, um, but at least it's exciting for all of us to, um, we've been hearing a lot about zoom hearings. We've heard about some zoom trials. We've had some guests talk about that, but, um, there is something about going in person to court. That's just different. So it's, it's exciting yeah. that it's happening basically it, a year they, later they were doing jury trials they were doing a murder trial while we were there so oh, really they're, they're um so they're trying to get back to it did you get to peek in at anything like how are they handling where's the jury sitting i did not get i did not look in on where they were doing the the murder trial except that um uh, they were uh sort of um uh hurting is the wrong word <laughs> but having the you know jurors walk through the halls and taking them to different rooms yeah so so i that's how i i was like Are you guys doing a jury trial here and they're like yeah we're doing a murder trial right now wow. so um you know that was my uh extent of it exciting well, something for sure i think some parts of it will be interesting because i don't foresee at least for us going back to how we did things before in every way because I think the days of us feeling the need to travel to every single deposition is right. just, you know, from a cost standpoint now with the technology that we've all learned, I just, I, I think that part is here to stay. I agree. I, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, that, uh, you, you, I mean, you, virtual depositions, in my opinion, work pretty well. Um, you know, the technology's good. I, I, I kind of prefer them because of, you know, one, they force you to get organized ahead of time. They, um, you know, when you're sitting in your conference room or wherever you're sitting, I mean, you spread stuff out the way you want it and you don't have to worry about anybody else looking at it. I, so I absolutely agree. And it, and from a cost standpoint, you know, it, it definitely reduces cost for cases. For sure. Um, well, so should we go ahead and introduce our I, I guest? I think, I mean, because uh, <laughs> she's been talking, but we haven't told anybody who she is. I mean, this is just a mystery guest. So we're going to let our, our listeners guess 
uh, who are our guests is now. We're just not going to tell you. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, no, I'm very excited to have this guest and we canceled on her. We had to cancel on her twice for unexpected yes. uh, developments in our cases. And she was so cool to reschedule with us. And we were looking forward to talking to her and talking about her case for a while. So I'm glad it's finally happening. Um, our guest is Natalie Woodward. She is founding partner at Champ Jordan Woodward. And you can look her up at sjwtriallaw.com. And one of the things that's, I think this is right at the beginning of um, Natalie's bio, if you go and look her up, but it is so true is that it says anyone who meets Natalie feels like they've known her their entire life. And (laughs) I feel like that's so true for Natalie. She's just so easy to talk to. um, And just like one of those people that's just really fun to be around. So Natalie, thank you for being on with us today. Thank you for having me. I've been a fan for a while. I've been uh, listening and um, this is so cool. Well, we should mention that. Uh, so we had your partner on as one of our first guests, uh, I think more than two years ago now. We had Laura Champ on and um, she talked about one of her uh, tobacco cases. And uh, those are always fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I listened to that. That was, uh, yeah. So that was, those are cool. She has not done any of those in a while, but um, for several years there, she was uh, doing a lot of those. So, yeah. Well, we have a treat today because your case, I think we definitely haven't talked about a case like this just because some of these facts are really crazy. Um, But before we get into the case, um, I want to tell our listeners who don't have the pleasure of knowing you a little bit more about you. Um, Natalie has tons of experience in personal injury, product liability, medical malpractice, false arrest and malicious prosecution. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, She's gotten terrific results in those areas, including the case that that we're going to talk about. Um, Natalie is a double dog, which everybody in Georgia or most people in Georgia know what that means. But for our listeners, for that one listener we have like in Australia and uh, other places. I think we're um, actually up to three listeners in Australia. Three listeners in Australia. So for our our, our Australian fans, um, that means that Natalie went to University of Georgia for undergrad and for law school. And that's actually how I met Natalie. She was doing, um, she was an alum judging a moot court thing, um, which Steve, I don't know when we're going to post our our uh, bonus episode about law school, but um, <laughs> listen to that episode if you want to know more about <clears throat> Moot Court. But yes, we should we we should uh, um, tell everybody that we are coming out with a, a bonus uh, podcast where we talk to our producer Raz about whether or not he's going to go to law school, and uh, I think he's oh, wow. towards it. So uh, yeah, good. yeah, good. yeah, yeah. It was a fun conversation, so we should be posting that soon. Um, but anyway, as Natalie's. Does, you know, she's basically one of those people that juggles a million different things and you wonder how she does it. She's on the executive committee for for the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. She's on the in the Atlanta Trial Lawyer Society. She serves on nonprofit boards. Um, she just does a ton. She was named one of the best young lawyers in Georgia by Atlanta magazine, which is a big deal. And um, the thing she's probably the most proud of is that she's also a super mom. So, I am. Yes, um, I am. I have a six-year-old little boy, and he is awesome. He yeah. told me he wanted to be a lawyer last week, so that was really oh wow, cool. that is awesome. Yeah. That's that awesome. was fun. Yeah, I'm gonna try to talk him out of that, but yeah, that <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah. We'll see. We'll see if that lasts. I've got my girls. Uh, we're uh, similar when they were younger. Now that they're teenagers, they're not. I don't think they're so sure they want to be lawyers. 
Yeah. Oh, well, we'll work on that. We'll work on yeah, that. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for a swimmer. I'm hoping, yeah, I'm trying to make the next Michael Phelps. So we'll nice. see how it nice. <laughs> Good, Good idea. And then he can do whatever he wants after that. Yeah, after that. After yeah. the Olympics, he can do what he wants. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so let's talk about the case, Natalie, that that you you brought us to talk about. And this is going to be, a, uh, like I said, it's it's really f- uh, fun facts for us um, and different than a lot of the cases that we've talked about. And I, I think we should say to our listeners, if I read right, Natalie, this was the your very first case as a lead trial lawyer. It Sorry. was. It was. Nice. Uh, my um, Corey Stern and I had both been... Um, working at two different law firms. We had graduated law school a year apart and had been friends since law school. And he had been working at Pope McGlamoury, a big, um, awesome plaintiff's firm. And I had been doing medical malpractice defense um, with Scott Commander and Ted Pound and Scott Mayfield. And um, we were 30 and 31 respectively when we started our firm, which now sounds ludicrous, yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. And so this was, uh, the first trial, um, that I had after we had started the firm, um, that I was lead on and, uh, yeah. So, and it was against, I think one of the things that, that made it looking back now poignant was that it was uh, the opposing attorneys were my ex bosses. My first job out of law school. Yeah. So my first job out of law school had been with Brinson, Nascue and Barry in Rome. And, um, and they ended up representing the defendants in this case. So that was, uh, (laughs) that was unique. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. But yeah, that was, that was kind of cool about it also. Wow. So lots of dynamics happening in this case. Um, So the case is called Robert Richard Lucas versus City of Braswell um, and others. It was tried in 2003 in the Northern District of Georgia. And and I'm sure this will come up in our conversation. But as we've talked about before on the show, um, trying a case in federal court can be a whole different ball of wax um, than in state court. Um, everything from from what you have to provide before trial to how Vore Dyer is going to work. Um, so we'll talk about that. But first, I'll tell the listeners a little bit about well, I, the case. I, I think I should say you you might have just mistakenly said 2003. I think it was 2010 when it was tried. Oh, my bad. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, I did okay. say it's, not, it's not a big deal. It's I did say 2003 because I wrote 2003. I don't know where that came from <laughs> yeah. or why. 2010. My bad. Um, yeah, especially because the next thing I was about to say would not make sense, which was in 2007. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Everything happened in 2007, but we somehow tried this uh, four years earlier. <laughs> we knew well, it. Yeah. Um, so. so in 2007, um, Robert Richard Lucas, he was the the. Um, chief of police for the city of Braswell, which for for people who don't know, um, is pretty small. It's it's about um, three square miles. We'll talk a little bit about the dynamics of of what was happening. Um, well, and, and I saw you somewhere in you. I think it was your complaint. There was one police officer for every sixteen people, or something like that. <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah. It was a it was a very small city, um, and it had really been. Um, controlled by, in large part by this, this particular family that owned the one bar and owned the one um, gas station and kind of all, uh, controlled um, but a lot of the city, both from a business standpoint and from um, government standpoint, both. So, yeah, I just want to comment. 
and you know, yeah. rural Georgia, especially, you know, um, in the seventies and eighties and it's less common. Now there are a lot of small cities for any folks who took Centel at UGA and, and learned about <laughs> municipal corporations. Um, right. There are some <laughs> unique parts of city and county law in, in Georgia. Right. And so, um, that was that's one of the really interesting elements uh, of this case was that the um, as Natalie mentioned, the the mayor, um, Richard Fennell, and then the city manager, Alan Fennell, um, were kind of the two major uh, individuals involved in this case, um, two of the major individuals in the city of Braswell kind of controlling what was going on and our father and son city city manager is the father. Right. And then the mayor's his son. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. And under so, the uh, requirements, you know, in order to have a a bar, you have to have a police department that is at least operating while the bar is open. So that's why um, the police department had to at least be operating and have officers. You know, the county would normally respond to normal nine one one calls, um, but you had to have if you're in the city limits with a bar you got to have a police department in that city limits also right and and you another just interesting fact i think is that they this was a part-time police department and they worked from thursday through saturday which were the same hours the bar was open there you go (laughs) so that sort of background makes um what I'm about to say make a lot more sense, which is that um, Robert, who was chief of, poli- chief of police at that time, had basically told the mayor, you know, we need more vehicles. And so he wanted to purchase some used um, Crown Vicks for the police department. And the mayor essentially told him that um they didn't have enough money for both vehicles right now. And so what the mayor did was he gave Robert a thousand bucks for one of the vehicles and told him, you know, if you pay for the other one personally, I'll reimburse you when some tax money comes in. Um, So Robert goes and, and gets the two crown victorias, including buying the one with his own money. And then he pays his own money to get the city of Braswell lettering and everything on it and puts it into service for the police department. And then he's waiting and he's waiting and he's not getting reimbursed for, for what he's paying for this vehicle that the police department is using. And then Natalie, I wasn't sure which happened first. If he, it sounded like maybe the the mayor, um, the then mayor, lost his um, election. So he was going to a new mayor was going to be sworn in. And then Robert. So then Robert asked the mayor, like, hey, you know, uh, where's where's my money? And right. and the mayor essentially and the city manager told Robert he wasn't getting reimbursed, that it was a, a non reimbursable um, donation to the city, this this vehicle. Yes. So they decided at that point um, that their position was that he had donated the car. And he said, no, that is not accurate. Um, and, and the reason why he'd gone to them is, as you guys know, oftentimes when the mayor, new mayor comes in, the mayor can pick who the chief of police is going to be. Right. So he might be out um, of the job. So he knew he was about to be gone, too, since there's going to be a new mayor. So he's going back and saying, hey, you know, can you pay me for the for the vehicle. And they said, no, you know, you've donated that. Um, and that's where, 
that's where the things go off off the rails. Well, right. and, and one of the things we should mention is that he the title was in his name, though the title of the vehicle was in his name. Yes, and that becomes yes. a big big point. Yes, it becomes important later. But yes, yeah, so when he had, had done it, he had had the good sense that since he was purchasing it, he was going to have the title in his name at least until he got reimbursed. Right. Yeah. He, I mean, he figured out how to come up with the funds to buy it, bought in it himself. And so the title at this point is in his name. So he's told he's not going to get paid back. He's like, okay, well, I've got the title to this vehicle that I paid for. Um, and so he resigns as chief of police and he takes the vehicle and, um, and parks it at his house. Well, he, yeah, he, he repossessed it from another police officer, right? There I mean, was, I was Right. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know if you were saying, okay. I yeah. Were, yeah. So a, a right. friend of his, the story. Using, yeah. A friend of his who was actually using the vehicle, who was also in the police department, he goes to him and says, Hey, I need the, the, you know, police car. Cause they were taking them home. And you know what, what a lot of these guys would do. And the reason why they did this is that these were not their main jobs. They did this, they would do these part-time police department jobs in order to maintain their post certification and then by having their post certification, they could then have private security jobs. And so their private security jobs or, you know, you know, if they were truck drivers on the side, whatever, it doesn't hurt to have a badge. Um, there's various reasons why them having their post certification and then doing these private security jobs. I think Mr. Lucas did his for Georgia Power. That would be where they would make the bulk of their money, their salary, but it depended on them being post-certified and actually employed by a police department in order to maintain that certification. Got it. Okay. All right. So that's, that's interesting. Cause I didn't realize like, um, you know, I was kind of like, what are these, uh, these guys doing, you know, otherwise, but that makes sense. Um, so Robert has resigned from chief of police. He, he gets the vehicle back. He parks it at his house. And then the, I guess at that point, the acting police chief, um, Mr. Williams, um, kind of with direction from the Finnells, the mayor and the city manager, gets a replacement title for the vehicle under false pretenses. He essentially lies and says that um, that Robert, Natalie's client, lost the title and that and gets a new title issued in the city of Braswell's name for the vehicle. Right, and he has to go to the mayor of Powder Springs, where they had bought the car from. And he, where where he works part time as well, and says, right. "Hey, Mayor, we've lost this title. We need a replacement title for this vehicle." She doesn't question it. Says, "Okay, great, no problem." Gives him the replacement title, and then he then takes that to the magistrate judge as his basis to swear out the warant for stolen vehicle. <laughs> yes. So by the, by the way, ahead, I, could, I could see, uh, I, I saw how Natalie described that in the opening statement where, and I could just, I could just picture her saying where she's like, oh, shucks, Mary, you know, we lost the title. Can we, can we get another <laughs> one? <laughs> Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. 
Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now. Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. You can see this going down, especially in a in a small town, right? That it's just kind of, you take folks word for things and and you just get this stuff done, especially when you're doing stuff for the city. Um, And, you know, it's kind of crazy. So then they get this, this new title that is not right. And, and meanwhile, Robert's still got the actual correct title. Um, It has not been lost. And, but then meanwhile, so, so the Fennells and and Mr. Williams, they run with it and they start pursuing a, a, criminal prosecution against Robert. So they have him arrested, um, which is already crazy. But then as Natalie, you know, pointed out to the jury and and in the pleadings of this case, he gets arrested and he gets put in jail in a holding cell with people who likely know that he is in law enforcement or or was very recently in law enforcement. Um, And so, so, you know, that's, that's an additional sort of stressful situation for him. I got to imagine, Natalie, like, did you, did you get the sense of whether, I mean, I'm sure you did, whether, 
um, what that was like for him. Was he, was he scared that people knew or did people actually know? Yeah. I mean, cause you know, the way he described it was he literally was put in the tank, you know, with folks who he had previously arrested right. before. And so you're in this, you know, sort of general holding cell. And that was one of the kind of odd, um, you know, you get feelings about cases, right? We all do about certain things where it's hard to put a money value on. You go, okay, well, it was only eight hours or it was only, you know, 10 hours or it was only two days or three days or whatever the the timeline is for various cases I've had. But, you know, then there's the, oh, this is a guy who's upstanding, you know, police chief, and he's getting arrested in front of his neighbors, in front of his kids, for something that's, you know, a theft-related accusation taken to the police department, booked in, fingerprinted, mugshot, and put in, you know, a holding cell with folks who he's actually arrested before. So the stress of all of that, even, even under a relatively short amount of time, um, I think is is part of what made it something that I was interested in, in taking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean... It, Right. You you hear about these facts and you, it's hard to imagine what it would be like for him because I can't really imagine arresting somebody. Um, but um, just because I've never been in that situation, but it's it's clear from what he goes through, especially when you think about how all this gets started, because he's trying to get equipment that the police department needs. Um, and this is how he's paid back for it. Um so anyway, to sort of wrap kind of th the things up that led up to the case. So he eventually makes bail um, and the criminal prosecution, um, the, the judge finds that there was no probable cause for the arrest warrant um, once, you know, Robert's basically able to produce that he's got, you know, he's got the title for the car. Um, anyway, so that all gets terminated in his favor. After that... <laughs> And I'm interested in hearing more about this um, from Natalie. There's um, the 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 um, Fennells come up with a check that um, was purportedly used to reimburse Robert, and it's a personal check written to Robert by the mayor. But then, on the face of the check, it is at least supposed to look like then then Robert endorsed it back to the mayor and then the mayor supposedly cash. cashed it and gave for Robert $3,000. <laughs> right. Yep. So um, that was, so, um, yeah. And, you know, and you guys know this cause y'all both had these sort of beginning parts of your career where you're getting calls. I mean, I, you know, from Marietta from Powder Springs, every relative I have is within a 25 mile radius. Right. So everybody I went to high school with and, you know, lots of folks I went to college. And so you end up fielding a lot of calls from folks who will call you about various things. And so when I first got the call about this case, it was it was right before he had gotten arrested when the fear was that he was going to be arrested because there was the warrant out for him. And of course, you know, when you first hear this stuff, you're like, well, you know, that seems like some kind of misunderstanding. Looks like something y'all can work out. Right. Surely you can. Um, and then the next call is, oh, he's been arrested. <laughs> you know, and, then, and so we actually helped effectuate the charges getting dropped. Because, okay. as you know, in the criminal and in the false arrest world, you, you don't have a false arrest case if you plead guilty or if you're found guilty or if you plead guilty to anything. 
Right. And so the charges had to be dismissed in order for there to be even a possibility of anything later on. Um, so we actually worked on that part first. And so when um, the decision to, okay, well, let's you know file because otherwise his arrest was going to stay on his record. Mm-hmm. The charges had been dismissed but they had not expunged his record. So he was going to have an arrest record unless something was done to <laughs> counter that. And so that arrest in and of itself, despite the fact that there was a decline to prosecute, the arrest was going to keep him from being able to do future jobs as a police department anywhere else. He would have that arrest on his record. And that would then mean no post-certification, all these security jobs, those kind of things. So it was a it was going to have a domino effect on his life um, that that really made it make sense. It wasn't just, hey, I'm mad that this happened to me. This was going to follow him, but for him doing something about it. Gotcha. Well, I sure would have been mad if I was him. And um, he's he's very fortunate that you, you saw it the same way and um, that you got involved um, early, early enough to kind of preserve the false arrest issue and, and take his case. And so Natalie um, pursued claims under section 1983 for the false arrest, malicious and retaliatory prosecution. And in 2010, um, uh, this, as I mentioned, this was the Northern district of Georgia. This was up in Rome, Georgia, um, return a verdict in Robert's favor, awarding $560,000 in compensatory damages and $440,000 in putative damages for a total award of $1 million, which is huge. Such um, such a, a great result. And for those who, we'll talk a little bit about this, Natalie, because I like how you handled this in your argument, but in um, especially in Rome, uh, Georgia, that's not um, necessarily a jury pool where you think they're going to um, come up with a big verdict. Um so really great result. There's so much to talk about. Um, but one of the things that I want, um, that I think would be really useful because we don't talk a lot about a lot of cases like this on the podcast is if you can just talk a little bit about, um, when you're approaching 1983 claims in general, you know, knowing, um, that you're going to end up in federal court and just kind of, um, how you approach those and the unique challenges that they present. Well, you know, the, the reason why they are so hard is because of qualified immunity. And that's really, um, yeah. that's that explains it. And what that means is, is that it's not enough to just show that someone made a mistake, that someone that was arrested who shouldn't have been arrested. Um, you know, hindsight is such that if the officer who um, swore out the warrant to obtain the warrant, if they were mistaken, but reasonably mistaken, um, that in and of itself, no matter how wrong it was, how big a mistake it was, if it was a reasonable, good faith mistake, they are always going to be um, get out on qualified immunity. Um, it's the classic scenario of, oh, you know, you're chasing some of officers chasing somebody who they just saw commit a crime and the person turns around and the officer thinks it's a gun and really it's a cell phone and somebody gets shot well, was the mistake reasonable in the moment? Right. And so what we're seeing in the news a lot right now, mm-hmm. even today, we're waiting on a jury verdict mm-hmm. in the George Floyd case is, well, this outpouring of, of frustration from um, 
cases where it wasn't a innocent mistake. It was uh, an intentional act meant to harm. And even in the police context, a intentional act to harm is still going to get immunity if if it was a reasonable response to right. the situation. <clears throat> so what makes it so hard is because you literally have to prove that they acted with malice, that they knew that they were doing something wrong um, at the time. And, and the reason why this case was able to even get to a jury was because we were able to show that when he went and swore out the warrant, when he did the affidavit, that he knew he was lying when he said, oh, this vehicle's ours. Right. Right. He knew that. So because he knew that and gave false, knowingly gave false information to the magistrate judge, that was enough to get us past qualified immunity. And that is a rare, is a rare occurrence where you have evidence of, of knowing um, fault on the part you know, knowledge of the bad action on the part of the person who is causing the arrest to happen. Right. Um, I mean, that's why not so hard. Yeah. I was wondering when you got a sense in this case of, of that you'd be able to come overcome qualified immunity and how, and also how you were able to, to gather the evidence to do it. I mean, did you have to rely basically on, um, on the depositions of these folks or did you have any good emails or anything in discovery? Yeah. So, well, interesting thing about that. So we did not take a single deposition in this case, not a single deposition. We filed and and relied on everything from the documents that we had, uh, that we had. And so I think that we had um, an affidavit from the mayor where, who who he'd gotten the replacement title from. Right. That he he had gone to her and said it's lost. OK. Right. Well, he, he he then turns around and goes straight to the magistrate judge. And we have that affidavit that he filled out the magistrate judge where he's saying this is a stolen vehicle. Right. Well, if you just said two separate things just in those documents, mm-hmm. that is in and of itself enough for that. You know, in this case, it was enough to show, well, both can't be tr- true. Right. If he's just saying oh, it's lost, no problem, we just need a replacement title to the mayor, and then taking that immediately over to the magistrate judge as evidence of your ownership, evidence that the city owned the vehicle so that they can swear out a a stolen vehicle for it, that was enough to get us past that. But that's that's just the, you know, that was a unique circumstances, and and it's funny because every single one of the false arrest cases I've had have had some element of that where you're really not relying um, simply on the depositions. You almost need something else, ideally, especially when you're in the front end of the case. You don't know what they're going to say. Right, right. So that blows my mind because that means that you showed up to this trial not ever having deposed the defendants. We had not. And so this this goes to why this is interesting, because I really think that – because we were new and because we really thought, oh, you know, they're going to see how are they going to, you know, they're going to see this is clear that the, the, the lawyers are going to see there's no question, you know, this shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't feel like it was really a, a real dispute mm-hmm. that, hey, he got arrested and he shouldn't have. 
oh, at some point they'll make us an offer. He's a reasonable guy. Surely we're never going to take this to trial. Um, and, you know, when they called and finally said, hey, you know, there's no insurance. There's no, <laughs> you know, uh, w- you know, we love you, Nat, and everything. Um, these are my <laughs> ex-bosses saying this is real sweet, but, um, but you know, uh, no insurance. And, you know, my position was, okay, well, I'm going to try it anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and because I had individual named folks as the defendants and those right. individuals have assets. Right. And I have never since then ever, I don't think, um, had a case where I knowingly proceeded against defendants who I knew were at least proposing that there was no insurance and it would all be personal assets. So, yeah, that's, I think the first and last time I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. One, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is so he issues this warrant, which is a, it, to me is a little bit strange. Just that fact. I mean, obviously, the whole thing is strange because he's making this up. But that you have the the complainant, like the city of Braswell is essentially the complainant here. And they're the ones also issuing the warrant. It, I mean, usually you'd think you'd go to a different police agency and you'd say, Hey, look, this guy stole our car. Can you investigate it? And then, you know, and then they decide whether or not to swear out a warrant, which didn't happen here. Well, um, they got it, it from the county. So they went to a okay. different county. They went to the Paulding County magistrate judge. Okay. Okay. And swore out the warrant to that magistrate judge. And that magistrate judge is who gave them the arrest warrant. Okay, okay. That's why the criminal case was pending in Paulding County, was because the Paulding County magistrate judge had issued the arrest warrant. And then, if, as you guys know, once there's an arrest warrant, anybody can go and pick them up wherever they are. So they then, you know, go and pick him up at his house in Rockmart um, and arrest him there, bring him to Paulding County. And he's in the Paulding County Jail, which is, the you know, one county over from where he had been police officer. And so that's why, you know, there were folks in the jail there, a much larger jail that he's right. know, come across before. Well, um, yeah. one of the, one of the interesting facts is that um, he, when he, well, I guess when he hears that the warrant is out there, he, he goes to Paulding County to the police and says, Hey, look, I know there's a warrant out for me for this stolen vehicle, but here's my title. And then Paulding County basically calls up uh, uh, chief Williams and says, you know, what's the deal here? We're not going to arrest this guy because he did, he's got title. And then he somehow, and it sounds like it was uh, Floyd County that actually uh, picked him up and actually arrested him. And, and um, was there ever any thought to pursue any action against Floyd County? No, because, you know, well, actually that's not true. We did think about that. And what I learned is that, you know, it all goes back to the mindset of the officer who's, who's um, acting. And so, right. The first officer, the Paulding County officer, who said, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna carry out this warrant for this arrest because this looks like it doesn't line up to me," you know. Then they go down the line and find someone else, and they say, "Hey, here's an arrest warrant. Go arrest him." And that guy doesn't know. That officer doesn't know the backstory. So right. we weren't going to be able to prove that that person who actually put him in handcuffs knew that he was doing anything wrong. Right. I mean, basically, he sees a warrant. It's a to his, to him at least. It's a valid warrant, so he goes and he he executes it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so that was why, which allowed us to can I keep it streamlined, and I think made it easier because it, 
you know, especially up in that area of the world or any of the world, <laughs> you don't like to sue the police. Right. And um, any arguments that we could have made or potentially would have made about, oh, well, they should have done more to check the validity of the warrant or something to that effect, I thought was just going to muddy the waters and make things more complicated um, for everybody. So we, we decided not to do that. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So, Natalie, you're approaching this case and then... Um, you know, and so you've got to try in the Northern District of Georgia, federal court, <clears throat> way more rules. You know, you sent us your consolidated um, pretrial order or whatever, whatever they call it um, in federal court. And, um, you know, it's way more elaborate. I mean, it looked like y'all had to include your Vordire questions that you wanted and just everything. So and you're approaching this. Meanwhile, obviously, having seen through your experience, um, knowing it, um, a good bit about trials, but do you recall, I guess, um, you know, how you approached Vordire in this case or what you were even able to really strategically do with it? Well, the first thing that I did once I realized that we were going to try it for sure. Yeah. Um, is that I called, uh, who is now one of my best friends, but was at the time a total stranger to me, um, uh, Bill Atkins, who is, um, well-versed in constitutional law cases. And I said, hey, you don't know me, but um, I have a trial in about a month and um, I want you to come try it with me. <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, after he realizes that no one's pulling a joke on him, um, he says, okay. <laughs> so he looks at everything. And so what was great about that is that Judge Murphy, who was the judge on the case, is revered and you know, amazing man who actually swore me in when I was right out of law school when I was working up in Rome. Um, tons of experience just, and 
you know, no nonsense at all. And the last thing that I wanted to do was to take my inexperience at the time and, you know, make um, anyone's life harder. And so um, it was a lot of learning in a very short amount of time. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, as far as, as far as Bordier goes, and you guys may not remember this, this is right around the Tea Party movement time right. in politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with federal court, you're going to be pulling jurors from multiple counties. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the idea, the, really the theme that I that I jumped on and tried to stay throughout was that this idea of government overreach, that this was a um, the, the government versus the individual and this idea of the brazen aspect of there not being the, the right kind of um, safeguards in place and that ultimately a jury is what the safeguards are that exist for us. Yeah. And making that the the theme, um, because you can imagine this jury visually was about the worst jury you could ever imagine. <laughs> I mean, these are all conservative folks who, you know, law abiding, um, hardworking, wonderful people who are are um you know, everybody probably had a shotgun in their closet, and this was uh, this was a a group of folks though who I think um, took their even also took that same jury service very seriously. Yeah, well, and yeah. I think you you set it up really well for them. You know, in your in your opening, talking about just like, look, these are the these are the rules, and and when you're um, when you're a government actor or whatever, these are the, it doesn't matter if you're up in New York or if you're what you do, you know, there's just, there's certain things that you can't do. And, and, um, so, you know, you kind of set up that sort of rule and that, that kind of government outreach thing. But then I also liked, I mentioned, I, I alluded to this earlier. Um, I think you did this in your close in your closing, um, you just talked about, you know, people aren't, I think it's okay for basically for people to be scared of juries. Like people aren't scared of juries anymore. And I think it's okay to be scared of juries. And I just liked how you, I thought it was just very brave how you put it, I guess, because you, um, you know, you managed to like not encourage them to get angry or anything, but to sort of remind them that they could do something that would have real consequences. It's funny to go back and look at these um, closing arguments, open arguments years after the fact, because I hadn't read it, obviously, since I don't think I'd ever read the transcript of the yeah. closing. <laughs> so I went back and looked at it and, um, you know, I was trying to find there was a I can't remember where exactly. I know it came out in the trial at some point, but there was this idea of, you know, all of these bureaucracies exist, you know, the FAA and the SEC and, you know, all of these things that we pay taxes for. And the point of that is to um, regulate and keep industries and keep government actors from going too far in, in, in cringing on our rights. And that a lot of times we actually um, are paying tax money for these bureaucratic organizations when if jurors and juries um, hit with a big enough stick when it was necessary that those bureaucracies wouldn't be needed. Right. And, but we have to have them because literally, you know, 
how much does Delta spend on peanuts, right, in a given year? When you're trying to get folks to um, give a big enough verdict that it's going to reverberate and actually have true effects, you're talking about more money than all of them and all of us will make in a lifetime sometimes, right? So how do you get them to give that number and understand that they have to hit with a, a stick that meets the size of the behemoth of whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that I think is hard. Um, and we, we all struggle with that, right? How do you make something really folks go, Ooh, wait, this was big enough that we're all going to listen now. Um, and we tried to stick with that, that if, that if they would do what they needed to do, that this would have ramifications beyond just this case. And I think right. we made at some point there was like a, you know, I, I compared that Manhattan's only 22 square miles, right? It was, it wasn't that much bigger. And so, but the same rules apply um, everywhere. Yeah. 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 So uh, one one question I had, and you, you did bring this up in your opening, and I'm wondering if you ever really did get to the bottom of it, which is, you know, basically, you know, you've got this police officer, the, the chief, uh, Chief Lucas, buying a, a, a vehicle for 1500 bucks, and then and then just wanting his money back and the city saying, no, we're not going to give you the money back. It, what what made uh, you know f the Fennells and uh, Williams take this extra step of saying just because we're in this dispute over fifteen hundred dollars, we're going to take out the, the the extra step to you know just uh, you know try and convict this man of of felony car theft? Uh, it, I mean, it, it seemed like there must have been some sort mm -hmm. of backstory that we're just not seeing or not maybe. Yeah, that was my thing always. I said, this is still, it still doesn't make sense. I see yeah. it's happening. And that was, you know, one thing Yvonne brought up a second ago about the check is that we're all the way into the, the case. We're about two weeks before the trial. And uh, Mark Webb, <laughs> the, uh, someone who had also been one of my superiors, um, sends me over, says, hey, I got something for you to look at and sends me a copy of a check made out to my guy. And says, there you go. There's a check. They actually paid him. And so my heart, you know, there's that moment where you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. You know, two years into this. And did he just forget that he got paid? Like what? <laughs> and so I call him and I said, Richard, we're looking at um, I'm looking at this check. And he said, Natalie, I've never seen that check before. I never got that check. It, <laughs> I've never seen it before. And I said, well, it's dated and, you know, it's been run through a bank somewhere. And he, he says, I'm telling you. And, and so the check was written out to him and on the back it was endorsed. And then there was a secondary endorsement. And I said, well, this might explain <laughs> you know, he, why you've never seen it. And so I called a GBI. I got in touch with somebody from the GBI as a handwriting expert <laughs> And sent him the check. And he said, every handwriting on this check is all the same person. Oh, wow. So I said, okay, well, that, so that then blew up that, wait a second. So they're writing a check, making it look like it was written to him, but it really was, you know, endorsed. And actually the money was taken somewhere else. So what I think ended up coming out in the trial was that, 
the money that son is telling dad has been paid to Richard ultimately is never making it to Richard. And being and so, pocketed by son is what, it, well, well, you yeah. know, we're not going to, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to make allegations. It's just that it wasn't, <laughs> Allegedly. Making, it to, uh, it wasn't yeah. making it to Richard. Well, I mean, clean I, about that. So why, why stick to the, he donated it? Why, why? Well, because I think, the argument can be made that it would have meant disclosing some questionable conduct if you say, oh, we really haven't paid him. Right. Right. So, or, yeah. And then, and then I, so there, I mean, I don't know if you want to tie this in, but I mean, one of the things that we have is this article about the, um, about the mayor uh, that was in 2012, so two years later, where he got indicted on 12 counts of credit card transaction fraud. And so I guess I'm, so, uh, you know, without uh, defaming anybody, <laughs> is was there allegations that he was basically just stealing money from the city? I think that that was the, um, that we were made the argument that there was some kind of malfeasance happening financially with the city and that, the attempt to cover that up was part of what had led to Richard being arrested in order to keep that going, you know, that, oh, yeah, you know, that there's to, to muddy the waters to keep that from being disclosed. I think that was um, a, the jury clearly could understand that that might be what was happening. Um, but yes, and then ultimately, you're right, because the his indictment. And I think his arrests or the had come out right before the trial, but I or either right after I'm trying to remember, but I know that the jury did not know about that. So they didn't okay. know about any of that. That was all kept out uh, or any kind of investigation as to the credit card fraud um, was all kept out. But it was one of those things where it just all looked bad enough that it seemed like um, there was more at play here than just, you know, folks getting mad at each other, you know, some kind of vendetta. Right. Um, right. It was it was more than that. Um, but it took us a long time. And it wasn't until that the handwriting and we finally got the check, which was funny because that was what was sent to us, I think, to, you know, say, hey, you know, you don't have a case anymore. Right. But that ended up being I think, what what made the case what it was, was right. that it handed that to us. <clears throat> right. So once I mean, we had that, it was like, well, there's no question now. You know, once you have the handwriting analysis guy going to come testify that all of it, and then when we got to trial, then they admitted that it was all of their handwriting. Oh my god! Wait, so uh, I didn't realize that. So what did so what did he say about the check that he had uh, done it all on his own? Yeah. So he said that he had that he had done it. He said that. Um, Richard had given him permission to endorse it. And then he met Richard and gave him the cash. Oh, and he endorsed it over to himself and gave it the cash. So that way we didn't, then we didn't need the handwriting expert to come in because he had said, Oh yeah, I wrote it all, but I did it with permission. Oh so. my God. That, oh my gosh. So <laughs> I, I did. Uh, wow. So um, I guess related to that. So did you, 
um, did you end up calling, what did you do at trial other than the stuff that we've already talked about? Did you call the finales on cross? Did you wait to see if they called them? How, how did that all play out? Sounds exciting. Yeah, I think we did call them on cross. I'm trying to remember, you know, we did it all in a week. So we picked the jury and did everything and was done, um, by Friday. I believe, I think we had it Monday to Friday and we are, you know, we had a verdict, um, and, but yeah, I think that's what it was, is that we ended up calling the mayor um, and who, who I still think was one of my favorite witnesses because she's just the sweetest lady. Her name is Pat Vaughn. And, so this is, um, this is the mayor. The pa- Powder Springs. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, right. who, who, Springs who gave the new yeah. title out after being told by uh, Walter yeah. Williams. Yeah. And, okay. you know, and she's coming in there and saying, you know, and I said to her, I remember asking her if they would have told you that there was any kind of dispute, you know would you have ever issued another title? And she said, well, of course not. You know, if there's any kind of, no, absolutely not. And, and she was just so believable because that there was no question in the world that this wonderful lady was never going to issue another title. And so that, you know, that once that, I even think the jury was mad about that, right. That they're in, someone's inducing this sweet lady, this wonderful lady, this mayor trying to do the right thing, inducing her into this. Right. Um, And yeah, so it was a very, it was a very quick, um, and then, you know, looking back, I think my opening was, um, I don't know that I would do it the same way, but trying to lay out this, these complicated fact pattern cases, which, oh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they seem to be always attached to cases with good results sometimes, is that there mm-hmm. is this complicated fact pattern and you worry about, explaining it to everybody or just get too convoluted and how do you keep it simple enough that people actually can follow it and um and that part was hard keeping all the players in line and then trying to give some rationale for why that why the heck would you do this um so that was that we were we were trying a lot of things there that i had not had to try before and meaning in terms of uh ways to make these arguments mm-hmm. um but, but I think in some of these, in some of these cases where it's small towns, it's, it's, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. I did think, yeah, I thought your opening was, um, was great. I mean, I wish, I, I wish I could have kept it simple trying to introduce the facts um, on our episode um, <laughs> because I thought you did a great job of laying out something that was that was actually really kind of complicated and weird and making it seem very simple, especially considering you hadn't tried um, really any cases as, as, as lead counsel at that point. Um, Do you remember what you did, how you worked on simplifying it so that you knew it was going to get across? I think, you know, I, I had, I started doing this then. I think I remember starting doing this then and have kept doing it before. And uh, we've all gone to CLEs. We've heard this, you know, if I can't explain the case to my mom in 30 minutes, right. Yeah. And her understand it. Um, then I'm doing something wrong. Like I literally have to be able to take, Hey, this is what happened and, and cut it down into that succinct of a, and some people would say shorter amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just thinking about well, what's this really about? What's the case really about? And if you know what is it really about in terms of, oh, this is about, um, you know, this idea that they were uh, using their power 
in a way that they shouldn't use their power and doing it in a brazen way. And here's what the, here's why. And then you put in the facts that you need to, to prop up that, that theory, your theory of the case. And you don't need every single fact in your opening to do that. But if you can kind of give the, the sense of this is really what happened and and you know, and you guys know this. You have to be very careful because whatever you tell them that they're going to hear, that you got to make sure they believe it. That's right. I mean, the goal is to be the person in the room who the jury um, believes as much as anybody. You know, I mean, I want them to like me more than they like the judge. I do. <laughs> you know, I want them, and I can't do that if I if I if they feel like I'm overreaching or I'm. Um, or I'm being too grandiose in my characterization of anything. And they also can't think that if I, if I'm giving, if I'm going too soft either. And so if I get mad about something or I'm irritated about something that a witness says, I don't really hide that. Um, I, I can get, I let that be known. <laughs> if yeah. I think something that somebody says is funny, I laugh. And mm-hmm. um, I think jurors respond to that. Or they yeah. have. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, I agree. I think jurors respond to being a real person, um, you know, that you're a, a human that, you know, sometimes makes mistakes, but you do the best you can. And, uh, you know, I think they they like that. Um, what, what, you know, uh, you know, I've, we've heard this a lot and I guess I, I, you made it sort of a, a, a theme, which is that, you know, this sort of set of facts before your client was arrested was told to a number of people and they all, you know, came back and said, well, it's a civil matter. And, um, and, and if the mayor had been the mayor of powder Springs had been told what happened, she would have just said, no, you, this is a civil matter. You guys go deal with it. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is when, so when, when, uh, law enforcement or, or you know, says this is a civil matter to me, it, it, they're saying it's not criminal. Um, but right. they don't want to say it's not criminal. They, it's, it, it's like sort of their way of saying it's not criminal. You know, deal with it in civil court. You guys have a disagreement, but we're not going to arrest anybody over it. Right. And I think that that idea, and you know, as I've watched the cases that we've all been seeing, you know, play out, this idea of what a massive amount, what an honor it is to be a police officer, what an honor it is to have that power and how much. Um, you know, especially the vast majority of them are are doing such an amazing thing to to try to act to protect folks. When there are the folks who take advantage of that or or push past the bounds of what's appropriate with that on any level, that it is more important than anything to to have a jury be willing to regulate that. Because if you don't, I think it it then has the possibility of diminishing how wonderful what good police officers do every day is if you don't protect even them from the bad actors you're doing them you're doing the good cops a disservice um so we yeah and that that is one of the reasons why i've always felt like these cases um and I've, i've talked to police officers before in cases where they've um, you know, we've been witnesses or something and, and you know, they don't say it out loud necessarily to you on the record, but afterwards they'll say, oh, yeah, go get him. You know, right. I mean, yeah. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a bad than good cops. Right. right. That's right. right. So, yeah. um, Natalie, so related to that, one of the things I don't know if you saw it, I know it's been a while that um, 
I, I think Bill might've done this in the close in the, I mean, in the close, the first part of the close, he talked mm-hmm. kind of a little bit about, um, you know, the, the sort of historical roots, uh, I mean, the, 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 the historical roots of, of jury responsibility and, and of 1983 claims and, and the constitution and, you know, protection against false arrest and, and things like that. And I always love that part because, but I wonder how much of it is because, I'm a lawyer and I went to law school. And I, and I, so I'm wondering if you do that in your cases, in your false arrest cases, or how you think that plays with the jury, how you like to handle that. I love that. I love that he does that. I had not heard him do that before. I've since heard him do that and watched him do that on multiple occasions in other trials, always with a verdict behind it afterwards, uh, always with a, a verdict for the plaintiffs. You know, that history aspect of it and really explaining why do we have this, cause of action. What's the point? What did it, how did it begin? Um, I loved that. I think juries, you know, crave that meaning, you know, they want to feel like what they're doing there is meaningful. And if you can connect the almost historic aspect of, um, of why it is that we have this, um, why is it that these things are, are put before a jury and what's the backstory of the history of it. I think they loved it. They loved it in that trial for sure. And it yeah. may have been because it was part of the political time, what was going on. Um, but they, I think that's really effective because I, I feel like you get um, the verdict that they gave was a message, right? I mean, that I still think, and as far as I know, it's still the highest false arrest verdict against a city um, in Georgia. And you know, for a straight false arrest, right? Where you don't have excessive force. You don't have mm-hmm. anybody shot. You just have somebody sitting in jail for, you know, eight hours, 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think it's because they were looking at it from the broader aspect of what are we really protecting, right? What are we, we're protecting you know, all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I think that was uh, really effective, yeah, so, I, uh, I always love I always love stuff like that. Anyway, sorry, Steve. No, I was just going to ask <laughs> one thing that uh, Bill uh, referred to in his close, and, and since we hadn't read the testimony, I wasn't quite understanding what was the defense saying about this uh, bill of sale, and they were saying they were protecting some security interest or something like that. He, I, as Bill sort of went off on that, and I just couldn't. I, were they saying? There was something about the bill of sale that that the defense must have brought up, and I just don't, I couldn't follow exactly what they had, uh, what their defense was there. I'm trying to remember. I think there was a secondary document where there were the argument was is that they were um, made the argument that they were protecting the interest in the property, the city's interest in the property, that they had to swear out a warrant because there was a dispute about had he been paid or not. I mean, there was some kind of. You know, that though this was an act of us trying to make sure that the, the car didn't get, um, you know, was, was not lost to the extent there was a dispute. I mean, you know, the, the defense attorneys on the other side, I'm not shy about saying this, are one of the, some of the best there are. And King Askew and, and Mark Webb did a wonderful job. I mean, they threw things at us that we had not even, as you know, happens that we had never even thought about. Oh, no, gosh, never even thought about that. Yeah. Um, And it's so hard not to get distracted by any of that, you know, especially when you're, you know, trying to case against people that are your mentors or looked up to in some way or another. Um, And just to try to stay focused on 
uh, exactly what it is, but you know, you end up having to knock down some of that stuff and closing it seems yeah. like every single time. So, yeah. yes. Well, and, and uh, you've, you've touched on this and I want to make sure the, the compensa- compensatory part of the verdict that uh, was, as Vaughn said, $560,000. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to belittle what happened to your client at all, but he basically spent a few hours in jail. Talk about how you, you know, presented the compensatory part of the verdict to get a, a verdict like that when, when we're talking about a relatively short amount of time. I think the um, I mean, that's where the small town aspect of the case really ended up, I think, adding value from a compensatory standpoint is that you've got the um, and I touched on this some, I think, in, in my closing with when I was talking about the punitives. But this idea about what's the value of your name, you know, if yeah. you've got this tainted part of you or as far as your oh he's the guy that got arrested a lot of folks just know that oh he got arrested for something in a small town and you know there was all the police officers had heard about it and a lot of them didn't know the backstory they just know oh i know richard he got arrested stealing something from the city um and that you know there had been two plus years um, we had testimony about how much money that he had not made that he would have made in security work that he had lost out on. Um, and so the compensatory damage was both from, oh, this is lost income. And we couldn't prove it in the traditional way because it wasn't every year his his um, security work would vary. Right. It would be you know part time here, here, here. But we could show on like a W-2 how much it had gone down from one year to the next to the next and so he had had a dramatic fall off and income because he with that sitting there he was having a hard time anybody that would run his criminal history would see the arrest yeah and so that i think really was how they they justified that number from a compensatory standpoint um the punitive part and y'all may notice that i didn't give him a number okay, i yeah. didn't ask for a number in the punitives um, I think Bill asked for 250 um, in the compensatory part, mm-hmm. and we did. I, we talked about that. Like, do we even give them a number and the punitives? Because they were very sensitive about not overreaching, um, and and I questioned that um, beforehand. I did not question it after. I mean, afterwards, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't give them a number for the punitives. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we did sort of, you know, I squeezed hard on that about, you know, the names, the first thing you get, it's the last thing you have, mm-hmm. you know, tombstone. And so from a reputational standpoint, what could be more valuable to anybody than how the world, um, what the world thinks about them as far as their character is concerned. Right. So, yeah. Well, and you also didn't bifurcate, right? So you didn't have the benefit of knowing what their compensatory award would be when you <laughs> talked about punitive damages. Right. But there was also, you know, but because of we were basically suing for the folks of these assets, I didn't want to bifurcate it because I'm, I didn't know what they would ultimately be able to show that they had or didn't have. Right. 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 So, yeah. 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 You bifurcate it and there's nothing but, you know, three or four of the buildings and what, what are you going to? Yeah, I think that would then dilute your punitive claim. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, you just I guess I say that just to say, you you know, they ended up 
um, what more than doubling what a bill had kind of asked for in compensatory. Mm-hmm. So you you were on the right track, but you had no way of of knowing it at the time. <laughs> right, right. I know. So better to be lucky, I guess. Yeah. For so sure. um, did were you able to talk to the jury afterwards? And I mean, they they basically evened you out right at a million dollars. So somebody, uh, you know, had that number in their head. Did they talk to you about how they came up with that or what they thought of the case? No, you know, it's funny because the um, the they didn't want to talk about it afterwards. They were very, um, you know, very quiet about that. Everybody left. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, it was on the news. I actually ended up someone I think years later told me they had talked to a juror and known a juror that had been in the case. Um, and yeah, I knew it was a fast, it was a fast verdict. So they were only out. You guys can know what this is like. I mean, they were yeah. only out for, I want to say less than an hour and a half. Oh yeah. That, that makes you, that makes you nervous. Yeah. Oh man. So that, you know, we saw that light go on fast and I'm like, Oh man. And, um, yeah, so they were not, I think they had, as we now know, all, all of us know, the jurors oftentimes get their minds made up yes. fast, you know, yeah. they, they're where they're going to be by the time you, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not convincing a lot of folks at closing, despite right. how much we like to think that, <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) I I always tell me, I mean, closings are fun to do because you get to argue, but I think openings are much more important. I mean, that's where you set the stage and that's where you're painting the picture. Yeah. I don't want to be having to convince anybody. If I'm I'm having to convince anybody to go my way at closing, I've done something wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, I think you want to, you can try to help on how much they're going to give you, but you're not going to, you're not going to be, you don't want to be trying to convince them who's right or who's wrong in closing. Right. Oh, so true. It just makes me think my palms just started sweating thinking about, it's been so, so long, but that feeling of both during opening and, and close, which I have not given, I have not given to a jury before, but when you're in on a trial team and that's happening, just how, how much I find that such torture, like looking at their faces and just wondering if they're getting it and what they're really thinking, (laughs) but it's been so long. Yeah. And it was one of those where, you know, we hadn't spent, it's not like we'd spent millions on the case. You know, this was important for him. It was important for us, but he had you know gotten for sure his day in court. And so, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, whatever happens, we've done, we've done our best and yeah, and everybody's going to live to go fight another day. <clears throat> That's harder in cases where you've got catastrophic injuries. We all know that yeah. Yeah. there's an emotional component in those kinds of cases um, that's different than when the plaintiff who's <laughs> is actually sitting right there next to you. You yeah. know, he was going to go on vacation with his kids the next week, no matter what happened. Right. Um, right. So that takes a little bit of the, that chest feeling that we all get that, that makes it a little bit different when you yeah. know, Hey, they're all walking out of here. Yeah. No matter yeah. what. Yeah. Well, it was a great result. And I mean, yeah. he's lucky to have found you and to have found you early enough to kind of make sure that you set this up. Cause I actually didn't know, although it's logical, I've never done a false arrest case. So I didn't really, I didn't really know that you could, you know, just to sort stuff out in the criminal um, proceedings that you could actually end up screwing up your false arrest case. I mean, okay. it does make sense, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, there's so many cases that I've turned down over the years. I had to turn down because of that um, rationale. And, you know, there's arguments to be made, but the, um, that, 
you got you get a call and something bad happened you're like yeah but they pled guilty to something else right secondarily and you know it's like well if you got arrested and you were guilty of for any reason right right they, it doesn't yeah, even matter not what you got yeah. arrested for yeah it's not wrongful arrest so um and that's hard because that ends up being that they've got to then plead not guilty and follow that all the way out mm-hmm. right yeah. or either can the, the, get right. the folks to decline to prosecute. So yeah. that part ends up um, washing away what is probably a lot of otherwise valid false arrest cases. Yeah. If they plead guilty to anything. And they're, some, I mean, there's folks that plead guilty all the time just because they don't want to take the risk of going to trial, even if they didn't do it. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so you take the plea, even if you weren't there, right. Versus um, facing, you know, mandatory minimums of, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So yeah. mandatory yeah. minimums, I think, um, are a great reducer of false arrest cases because they end up causing folks to plea out yeah. versus take the risk of uh, getting uh, a mandatory minimum sentence. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Natalie, uh, thank you so much for spending time talking with us. I want to make sure, uh, is there anything that you haven't talked about the Lucas versus City of Braswell case uh, that you want to make sure that our listeners uh, know? No, I mean, you know, I I thought about it the other day, you know, the the coolest part of that case at the end of it, um, and some of y'all know Bob Brinson, um, up at Brinson, Askew and Barry. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. the courthouse is literally, you know, right across the street, really from the firm. And um, when it was all over, we all went back to the firm and had a drink at the firm, <laughs> you know, <Nice. laughs> because it was, you know, everybody had. Um, it was just that that sense of lawyer camaraderie that I was raised in as a lawyer world, and that was really cool. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun for sure. Yeah, no, that that's definitely uh, one one of the great things, and and I I feel like it's been lost, uh, you know, in many cases where you. Me you, too, me yeah. too. I wish we could get back to more of that where everybody you know still likes each other after it's over. Mm-hmm. Right, so, right, exactly. That's the goal, anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Let me remind everybody we've been talking with Natalie Woodward of Champ Jordan Woodward in Atlanta, Georgia. And if you want to look up uh, Natalie, you can go to sjwtriallaw.com. Natalie, thank you so much for your uh, for your time. Thank you, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.